Well, guys, let's dig in to our message. Today is our last, our last Sunday in our study of David. Now, growing up, uh, I've got an older brother. He's five years older than me, named Richard. And I don't remember how old we were when this happened, but I was talking to him this week, and I was asking him if he remembered. He said, yeah, of course I remember this. So mom or dad were cooking, and uh, they had just turned the stove off. The burner was still red hot. Now, I knew that I shouldn't touch it, right? My brother's five years older than me, okay? You would think that he would know that he shouldn't touch the stove, but uh, uh, apparently he didn't. <laughs> but it didn't take him very long to see that the burner was still hot. <laughs> he pulled his hand back quickly, and the damage has already been done. His hand was burned. It was blistered up. Um, he had rings because it was one of those old electric stoves, you know, with the rings. You, man. But thankfully for Richard, his nervous system uh, indicated that there was pain as he touched it, and so he pulled back. Because if his nervous system wasn't working correctly, he could have just left his hand up there and done some, some real damage. But thankfully, his nervous system reacted to the pain, and so he yanked his hand back. And my nervous system reacted well as well. I had uncontrollable laughter that was coming from me as he was, ah, you know, burning his hand, right? Well, guys, for us, guilt is our spiritual nervous system, right? Guilt is the warning to us that something is wrong. And guilt is a gift. It is a gift from God. It may not be a basket of goodies, but it's a very good thing. It's the pain of guilt that lets us know that the sin stove is on and that it's hot and that we don't need to touch it and that lines have been crossed and that we have done things that are wrong. Now, if we ignore pain of guilt, we do so at our own peril. Today is our, our last week in our study of David, looking at this complicated guy named David. David was a poet, he was a prophet, he was the king, but he also, as we're going to see today, was an adulterer and a murderer. But God says that David was a man after his own heart. We have learned from David that we can fight like David, we can have courage like David when we don't put our trust in ourselves, but when we are putting our trust in God's strength. We saw from David's friendship with Jonathan that we can love like Jonathan loved when we put the needs of other people above ourselves. We learn to worship like David. And we can do that when we put God at the center of our worship because he alone is the object of our worship. And when we all join together in worship and when we realize that worship isn't just an event that we go to, but it's a lifestyle that we lead, we live a life of worship. And then last week we learned to forgive like David. And we said that we can forgive like David when we say no to revenge, when we say no to grudges, when we say yes to blessings and yes to kindness, even when people have hurt us and done things against us. And we've really focused on when other people have sinned against us. Well, today we're going to turn the table around and we're going to look at what do we do when we are the ones who have sinned? What do we do when we are the ones who are guilty? 
You know, most of us are prone to flippantly say that we're sorry, but a real apology involves repentance and expression of remorse. And repentance is an essential part of becoming a follower of Jesus, and it's also an essential everyday part of continuing to follow Jesus. True repentance involves seeing sin the way that God sees sin and then turning our backs on it. You know, in our culture, it seems that if guilt can be explained, it can therefore be excused. But the reality is that guilt should be a blessing to us and it should lead us to repentance. Now, can guilt be illegitimate? Well, I suppose it's possible. You know, occasionally our nervous system uh, does uh, give us and report some sensations and some stimulus that isn't really there. I was talking with Steve Alburn this week, and uh, some of you know Steve, and Steve is an amputee, right? And uh, sometimes he can feel his foot. It's not there anymore, right? He has some phantom pains. And he said most of the time it's not pains anymore. It's just kind of like, hey, my foot's there today. I feel, my brain's telling me I've got a foot, even though it's not there, right? You know, sometimes our nervous systems can be wrong, but 99% of the time, our nervous systems are pretty reliable. And I would give guilt at least that much credit. Spiritually speaking, there's one thing that is more dangerous than, than the illegitimate feeling of guilt. And that's the illegitimate feeling of innocence. After David sinned with Bathsheba, as we're going to look at today, David initially dismisses his feeling of guilt and tries to hide his sin, and it almost kills him. But finally, thankfully for David, Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David and says, you're the man, and not in a good way. David experienced and expressed and embraced his guilt. He examined it, and he exchanged his guilt for God's grace, as we will see today. And his experience of forgiveness was deep and real, and it renewed his spirit and enabled him to walk steadfastly with God once again. But the truth is, unresolved sin can crush our spirits. It robs us of joy. It breaks our fellowship with God and with other people. It quenches the power of the Holy Spirit, and it gives our enemy a foothold in which to do further damage when we try to ignore and cover up sin. That's sin. But guilt simply says, hey, wake up. Sin is doing its thing. And responding to guilt with repentance turns the tables on sin. It replaces guilt with grace and exchanges, uh, and this is the type of exchange that only a fool wouldn't take. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me over to Psalm chapter 51. Now, Psalm is uh, about midway through the Bible, Psalms, if you're looking for it. Uh, Psalm 51, and I've looked over it, look at that. Um, Psalm 51 is where we're going to be at today. 
We're going to be looking at the story that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and we won't really uh, read from that section of scripture today, but I encourage you to go back and, and read that story. We're going to talk about it. I'm going to tell you the story of what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, but we're going to spend the majority of our time in Psalms 51, where David responds to being confronted with his sin, because I believe that we can learn a lot about how we too should learn to deal with with sin in our life. Psalm is about midway, Psalms is about midway in the Bible, if you're looking for it. Um, it's uh, right before Proverbs, pretty big book, so if you just kind of open up halfway through the Bible, you're probably going to be pretty close to it, okay? Uh, it's in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back table. We'd love to, to give you a copy of one. So in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David has become king. Saul and Jonathan they are, uh, they are, uh, have died at this point. Uh, Israel is at war with the uh, Ammonites, uh, and they had stopped fighting for the winter. And then the spring comes, and they all come back together and begin to battle again. And so David sends his army, uh, led by Joab, uh, to go and fight. Now, it was normally the custom for the king of a nation to go out with his army and fight in the front lines with them. And even though David wouldn't fight hand-to-hand -hand like he had done before he was king, he would still go and lead his men uh, into battle as they were fighting against the Ammonites. But David didn't do this. In fact, he stayed at home because he was lazy. He just sent his men to do the job. He stayed back in Jerusalem. So David was home while his men were out fighting the battles for him. And one afternoon, one evening, David, uh, in the heat of the afternoon, the heat of the evening, decides to take a walk, maybe trying to find a cool breeze. And he makes his way up to the roof of the palace. And his palace overlooked the entire city of Jerusalem. And so as he was there walking on his rooftop, he sees and overlooks a woman bathing. Now what David does wrong what David does next is wrong, but what Bathsheba was doing was probably also wrong. Bathsheba probably knew the proximity that she was to the palace and knew full well and probably wanted David to see her. But at any rate, even if she was innocent at first, she was just as guilty as David was next. So David sends for Bathsheba and Bathsheba comes and they sleep together and then she becomes pregnant. And when their sin couldn't be covered up anymore, couldn't be concealed anymore, uh, David tried to take matters into his own hands to try to cover it up. You see, Bathsheba was married to a warrior named Uriah who was out fighting for Israel and for David. And so David calls Uriah to come back home and Uriah comes in from the front lines and David begins to make small talk with him. Hey, how, how are the men doing? How's the battle going? Uh-huh, yeah, great, great, great. Okay, uh, hey, Uriah, why don't you go ahead and go home and see your wife? But Uriah doesn't go home. In fact, he stays with the rest of the servants in the palace and he sleeps on the floor. And so the next morning, David comes and says, Uriah, why didn't you go home? He had to be thinking, man, I, I'm trying to cover up this, this sin that I've done. 
Why haven't you gone back home? And Uriah says this, the ark and Israel are staying in the tents and my commander Joab, my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and be with my wife? As surely as you live, I wouldn't do such a thing. And how despicable must David have felt? How, how despicable must David have felt that here was this man whom he had had an affair with his wife and this man still was more noble than he was. He had an opportunity to go home and to, to see his wife and to be with his wife and yet he decided to stay with the rest of the servants in the palace courtyard because that's where the rest of his men were. So David pushes down that guilt. He ignores it. He couldn't get Uriah to go home, and so he sends Uriah back with a sealed message for his commander, Joab. In this message that Uriah carries back to his commander was a message for his commander to put him in the very worst of the battle, and then as the battle was raging, to pull all the rest of the men back so that Uriah would be killed. Now David didn't raise his hand to kill Uriah, but Uriah's blood was all over his hands. Now, there was a proper amount of time by the law that uh, a widow was to mourn for her husband. But the very next day, Bathsheba was at David's house and she became his wife. They must have thought that they had gotten away with it. They thought that their sin was covered up and that nobody would know. Uriah wasn't going to find out what happened. And sometime later, maybe even a year or two later, David and Bathsheba thought that they were in the clear, but God sends the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan comes into David and begins to tell David this story about these two neighbors, this rich man and this poor man. He says the rich man had all of the cattle that you could ever think of. He had all of these sheep and all of these cows and everything that you could ever want. But the, the poor man, he, he only had one little lamb. But he loved this lamb. He treated this lamb like it was his own child. The lamb would eat with their family and drink with their family and, and sleep in the bedroom with them. It was like it was his own child. Well, one day the rich man had a visitor that came to see him, and the rich man wanted to cook a meal for his visitor, but he didn't want to take one of his many cattle or his many sheep. So he goes and he steals this poor man's lamb. When David hears this, he is outraged. He can't believe it. He says, this man must pay for what he's done. He must be put to death. He has done such a thing with had no pity on this other man at all. And I want you to listen to what Nathan the prophet tells David next. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, he says, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And then Nathan goes on for the next couple of verses to continue to rebuke David for the sin that he had committed. 
And it leads David to finally to confront and confess his sin. Now, thankfully for us, as public as David's sin was, his confession is also just as public. And that's what we find in Psalm 51. We get to see David's heart during this time. And I believe that we can learn so much from David's response to to his sin, that we can learn about confession and sin in our own lives as well. In Psalm 51, we are about to see David's response to when God sent Nathan to confront him with his sin. And Psalm 51 describes David's confession. And this is a guilt. Uh, This is what guilt is designed to produce. Guilt is designed to produce confession in our life, not denials, not excuses, not bargains. You know, oftentimes when we begin making excuses, when we try to deny and cover up our sin, we are simply, we are simply showing our guilt and our unwillingness to repent. And sadly, often we are too hard-hearted and cowardly people to confront sin in our lives. But friends, let's learn from David. Let's learn from David once again and see how we should respond to sin when we are the man or the woman. The first thing that we can learn about sin from David is that we first must face it. We must face our sin. There is nothing to be gained and much to be lost for brushing sin and guilt under the rug. Look, David ignored his sin and it progressed, right? First, David was lazy. He, he should have been at the front lines with his men fighting, but he wasn't. If he had been on the front lines where he should have been, he wouldn't have been back in Jerusalem to commit adultery, right? But he didn't. So then David commits adultery, and if he had dealt with it, he wouldn't have committed murder. But he didn't, and so he has Uriah killed. And if he had dealt with that sin sooner, the discipline might have been less severe, but he didn't. You know, it's so tempting for us to try to ignore the pain of guilt and assume that nobody's going to find out about it, that we're going to be able to brush this under the rug, and soon our sin will be forgotten and overlooked. But it's also dumb. Because finally, as we're going to see with David here in Psalm 51, He's able to, f- to face and confess his sin. And we find this in verse 1 of Psalm 51. David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all of my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Friends, if we are going to learn to deal with sin like David did, then we first must face our sin. Now it took for David, it took Nathan to confront the sin in his life, but finally David repents of it. You know, the same is true for us oftentimes, isn't it? Oftentimes we are either blind or ignorant or even numb to the pain of guilt. And we, like David, need people like Nathan to speak truth into our lives and to confront the sin in our life and to hold us accountable. 
Now here at Journey Church, we say it like this. We say that we build strong relationships with each other, walking side by side through the messiness of life with prayer, accountability, and encouragement. And for us as Journey Church, one of the great places that we are able to find and to build those strong accountability type relationships is in life groups. You know, gathering here on Sunday morning is essential. But just as essential as our gathering on Sunday morning is our gathering the other six days of the week. It's the gathering in our life groups. It's in life groups where we are able to walk side by side through the messiness of life together. And man, here at Journey Church, we have five life groups. We have a men's group that meets on Tuesday and a women's group that meets on Wednesday. And we have three other groups that meet on Sundays. And if you're not part of a life group, we'd love to get you connected with one because it's in those life groups that we are able to find and to build these strong, accountable relationships. In life groups, they are a safe place for us to be able to share and confess our sins and to be held accountable to them. We need other people to help us to face sin. We need other people to help us to walk side by side through the messiness of our life together so that we can be prayed for and we can be encouraged and so that we can be held accountable. If we're gonna deal with sin like David did, then we need a Nathan in our life. If we're gonna face sin, we need a Nathan in our life. But not only must we face sin, but we also must feel sin. We must feel the guilt of sin. A brief I'm sorry does not adequately deal with sin. Sin must be reflected upon. Sin calls for us to explore our hearts and find the root of the evil of not only what we've done, but why we have done it. We need to feel the guilt of sin. We need to brood until the level of remorse matches the sin. And that's what David did. And he expresses us for it in the next verse. Look at verse three of Psalm 51. David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, talking about God, and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge me. Finally, after being confronted with his sin from Nathan, David finally starts to feel the guilt of his sin. He finally feels the weight of his sin. And he realizes that that pain of guilt is a gift. And it may not be a basket full of goodies, but it's a very good thing for David. And it could be a very good thing for you and me as well. Feeling guilt, feeling that pain is not easy, it's not fun, but it should lead us to our next step of dealing with sin. And that is to fix it. We must face sin, we must feel the guilt of it, and then we must fix sin. Now, what we can't do, we can't do is what we can't undo what we've already done. But we can try to make amends for it, and we must. Listen to what David says in verse 17 of Psalm 51. He says, my sacrifice, he's gonna make amends, oh God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. David really hits the nail on the head 
here. You see, for us to fix our sin means that we must come to the reality that we can't fix our sin ourselves. David says, my sacrifice to you, God, is a broken and a humble, a contrite heart. David realized that he couldn't fix his sin himself. But praise be to God, as Paul tells us. Who will rescue me? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, here's the truth for each and every one of us. For you, for him, for her, for me, for all of us. For your neighbors, for your family, for everyone around us, for you, for all of us. We all have sinned. And our sin may be different from each other. And our sin may be different from what David did. Or it may be the same. But we all have sinned. And we all have fallen short of what God expects from us. And each one of us, every one of us, now has a question. What will we do now that we have sinned? We all have So the question before us is, what will we now do with it? Will we ignore it? Will we try to ignore the the guilt of it, try to push it away, try to hide it up so that nobody else can see it, hope it goes away? Well, friends, let me tell you, it won't. It doesn't. Not until we face it. Not until we feel the guilt of it, which leads us to allowing God to fix it. We can't fix it ourselves. We looked at a verse last week in Romans chapter five and we saw that God demonstrates his own love for us and while we were still his enemies, while we were sinners, he sent Jesus to do what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus has paid your debt to sin and he's paid mine. And so in order for us to have our sin fixed we must first believe in Jesus. We must put our trust, our faith in him. And then we must repent. We must turn away from our sins as David did. We must give God our broken and humble hearts. We must confess our sins to God. And then we must be joined with Jesus in baptism. Paul tells us in Romans 6, that when we meet Jesus in baptism, when we are joined in Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, we too are raised to life just as Jesus was raised to life so that we can be not only forgiven and put to death sin, but we can be raised to live for God. Now, friends, some of you listening this morning may need to repent and be baptized for the first time. And a little bit later in our worship gathering, I'm going to be out in the lobby, and if you are ready to do that, I'd love to talk with you today. Or you want to talk about what that means, I'd love to talk with you today. We'll have on the screen my my phone number. You can call or text me anytime a little bit later in the service. But what about for those of us who already have? (laughs) You see, because once we're baptized, unfortunately, we don't stop sinning. And Amen. (laughs) Yeah, all of us that have lived, you know, 30 seconds past being baptized know that to be true, right? We still struggle with sin. So what do we do? We must continue to allow the guilt of sin to lead us to continually repent of our sin. 
which leads us to humble ourselves to God and confess our sins to him. Listen to what John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he, talking about God, is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then verse 10 is kind of heavy. But if we claim that we have not sinned, remember how I said that we all have sinned, everybody, right? And if you say that you haven't, look what John says. We make him, talking about God, out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Friends, we must confess our sins to God. And when we do, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us and purify us from all of our sins. But friends, we're not only encouraged to confess our sins to God, but we are also encouraged through Scripture to confess our sins to each other. James encourages us to confess our sins to each other and pray for each other so that we may be healed. Friends, again, this is where life groups are so essential, so important. Life groups are a safe place where we can walk through the messiness of life together. And part of this messy life is dealing with sin in our lives. It's confessing and being held accountable and and praying for one another and, and repenting of those sins and being encouraged. One of our elders, Kevin, often says that sin is totally understandable and at the same time totally, totally unacceptable. And and friends, this is the type of support that you will find in life groups. You will find other people who completely understand your struggle with sin and yet love you enough to hold you accountable against it. Now, even if we can't do anything to fix our own sin, we can take steps to make amends to those that we have sinned against. Right? David rightly so says here that against God and God alone that we have sinned, but there were some other in- people that were impacted by David and Bathsheba's sin. Right? And so we need to try to make amends with people that we have sinned against. Now last week, if you remember what I said when we talked about people who sin against us, I said that the only people that we can control is the person looking in the mirror. Right? We can't control the other person. And when we've sinned against somebody else, we can't control them. All we can do is what we can do to try to make amends for what we've done. All we can do is apologize and ask for forgiveness. But we can't control whether those other people will forgive us or not. But we are called, we are called to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. You know, AA, that's part of one of the steps, right? It's to make amends, right? And and that's true for all of us. Whether we have an addiction to something or not, we need to make amends for the sins that we have committed against other people. Friends, if we're going to respond to sin like David, we must first face it. We must be confronted with it. And sometimes that means somebody else loving us enough to confront the sin in our life. And then we must feel the guilt of it. And guilt is a a blessing from God and we need to allow that blessing to lead us to him to fix our sin. And finally, if we are gonna be truly repentant of our sin, then we must forsake it. This is true repentance. David expresses his desire for a pure and steadfast and spirit-filled, joyful life once again. And he makes a commitment to be faithful to teaching others 
the ways of God. Look at verse 10 of Psalm 51. David says this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, still pleading for God to cleanse him, right, to fix him. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then here comes the commitment, verse 13. And then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. David had not only faced his sin and felt the guilt of his sin and allowed God to fix his sin, but he was beginning to forsake his sin. This is transformation. It's not just about saying that we're sorry, but it's about showing that we're sorry by changing the way that we live by being changed by who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then by teaching others to avoid the same sins and traps that we have fallen for. David's teaching of sinners or transgressors, the ways of God, was not one out of arrogance or pride, but one out of humility. He says, God, I will teach others so that they don't make the same mistakes that I made. Friends, we know that sin is being beaten and guilt is being replaced with grace. When we are able to turn our backs on sin and walk in God's grace and when we are able to share with others our struggles with sin. You know, sin has always brought, always has and always will brings shame. Sin causes us to want to run and hide. It did it in the garden too. Adam and Eve, they went and hid from God. And sin causes us to do the same. And sometimes that hiding is simply us trying to point out specks in other people's eyes so they don't look at the planks in our own. But that shame leads us to try to run and hide. But a sign that we are moving through the process of repentance, of true repentance, is when we are able to share with others openly our past sins. Not to brag, but to humbly help them to avoid the same pitfalls and sins that we have fallen for. And here's the crazy thing. The more that we are able to talk about and share our past struggles with sin, the less power sin and shame have over our lives. We get a sense here from Psalm 51 that David is remorseful for what he did. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. Make me whiter the snow, cleanse me. Create in me a clean heart, God. Now we may think that David is being a little overboard or dramatic with his confession, but he wasn't. He truly saw his sin as God saw his sin. And he pours out his heart to God and he says, God, be gracious to me, even though I don't deserve it. Your judgment against me is right, but be gracious to me. Create in me a clean heart. We see from these verses in Psalm 51 that the guilt of sin had broken David. It cast him away from God his joy was gone. He was unsure of himself. And this is what sin does. 
It removes our joy. It drives a, a wedge between our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And sin breaks us down. But David had hope. He had hope because of God's grace. That it would blot out his sin. That it would cleanse him and wash them away. That it would renew his spirit and that God's grace would restore his joy through God's salvation. And that God's grace, friends, can do the same for you and for me. It can not only cleanse us, but it can renew us and it sustains us. Listen to this last verse that Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3. In verse 3 he says, At one time you two were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Friends, we all, everyone, All of us were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by uh, all the passions and pleasures of sin and this life. But God, God has saved us, not because of what we've done, but because of his mercy and grace shown to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And he renews us, he restores us, and he sustains us by his grace. David was truly repented of his sins. He owned up to them. He felt the guilt of them, and that sin led him to turn to God for forgiveness and grace and mercy. David realized that he could not make it all right, what he had done, but with a broken heart, a humble heart, he came to the only one who could. And we see through David's true repentance a heart the vow not only not to sin in this way anymore, but also to teach others, to warn others about the ways of God and the realities of sin. And fortunately for David and for us, his soft-hearted and, and courageous spirit led him to repentance. He had sinned tremendously, but he also felt the guilt and he shamelessly cast himself on the mercy of God's court. And in true repentance, he exchanged guilt for God's grace. Now, that's something that's kind of strange to us in our culture, in our concept of justice. David received a full pardon and yet paid a severe price. It's not easy for us to see how these two things are compatible. Under our world system, it's either one or the other. It's either a full pardon or we pay the price, but in God's system, both are possible and must be. You see, in God's system, he offers us a full pardon because the price is still being paid by somebody else. 
Jesus. David was completely forgiven. His fellowship was completely restored. His spirit learned, completely renewed. And yet David still faced the consequences of his actions. So let's learn from David to face our sins, to feel the guilt of them and allow that to lead us to God to fix them. And let's turn our backs on it and forsake it. Let's humble ourselves and allow God to fix what we have broken. And let's learn to deal with sin like David did. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you that even though David sinned tremendously, that, Father, his repentance was so public that we haven't written down his words in his response to his sin and how he confessed it to you because, Father, we can learn from his example. So, Father, all of us, every one of us in this room, everyone in this world, everyone in our family and our neighbors, our co-workers, all of us have sinned. And so, Father, we thank you for the example of David to show us how we are to respond to sin Father, help us not to bury it, ignore it, but Father, help us to face it and allow the pain of guilt to lead us to you to fix our sins, to fix what we have broken. And Father, help us to put them to death and forsake them. Father, often we feel like Paul and we think how wretched we are because of the things that we know that we should do, we don't do, and the things that we know that we uh, shouldn't do are the very things that we do. And Father, remind us that even though we are wretched, that you have sent your Son to rescue us and deliver us from not only the pain, but the debt of sin. Father, remind us that we can't fix this on our own, that we, that we must come to you. For you alone can forgive us. But Father, if we will confess our sins, we also know that you are faithful and you will forgive. And we thank you because we don't deserve it. Your judgment against us is right but Father, be gracious to us. Would you create in us a pure heart? Would you wash us whiter than snow? And would you lead us to the foot of the cross to lay our sins and our burdens down at your feet? We ask all this in the name of the one who hung on the cross taking our place, Jesus. Amen. Friends, let's take David's example to heart. Let's offer God a true confession of our sins in our life. And friends, maybe for you today, that true confession needs to lead you to God and allow him to fix what you have broken for the first time. Friends, maybe you need to come and Put your trust in Jesus for the first time. Jesus has died and risen from the dead 
so that you could be reborn, so that you could be renewed, and so that you can be forgiven. So won't you come today and repent of the sins and come and meet him in baptism? If you're ready to do that or you want to talk about what that means, I'm going to be out in the lobby in just a minute. Come, let's talk today or call or text me anytime. I'd love to talk with you about that. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we're going to move into this time of communion. And communion for us reminds us and it gives us another opportunity for us to repent and forsake our sins. God has given us this regular reminder to remember who we were and for us also to remember the price that Jesus has paid for us to be transformed. And so will you use this time? Use this time to reflect and to repent of your sins. And when you're ready, take the bread and take the cup. And let's remember the price of the sacrifice that has been made on our behalf through Jesus. If you didn't grab communion on your way in, you can raise your hand. I think Jeff's in the back there can bring that to you. When you're ready, let's remember and proclaim together today.